When Peter writes this letter, he writes it to Christians who have been scattered for various reasons, famine, persecution, coming persecution, life circumstances, everything else. And he writes them knowing that they're going to go through some things very soon that are incredibly difficult. I, I think it's good for us to come to this text anyway. It's the word of God. There are so many things Peter shares in these short letters, first and second Peter anyway. But it's also good any time that we start to feel a little bit antsy about the future, which we often do. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of those years where different circumstances keep hitting in ways where if you turn on the news, I don't actually advise that anymore. But if you turn on the news, it's a long prayer list, isn't it? Uh, and not necessarily the, the praying about the things that they're talking about, sometimes praying about what's going on behind what they're talking about that they won't talk about or that they talk wrongly about. There are a lot of things to pray about. There are a lot of things to stand up for. There are a lot of things to stand up against. And this is where they were when Peter wrote this. They're in the Roman Empire. They're at a time when they know. Uh, Peter knows this. He warns them of this. And so where they know, God has been giving them warnings that it will not always be easy for them to live by their faith. It won't be easy because Satan will attack. It won't be easy because immorality is all around them. It won't be easy because persecution is going to happen. Now, I'm not going to tell you that that's exactly what we're headed toward. But if you look at trajectories of the past and lay that over the trajectory of our present, it's a safe bet, isn't it? That we're headed into a time where in order to live by faith in Jesus Christ, you are going to have to have deep roots in the word of God, a strong relationship with God, a strong understanding and a deep understanding of what it means to be a Christian, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And where you are going to have to lean on one another and lean on the Lord more greatly than you ever have. I think that's fair to say that it certainly looks like that's true. It doesn't look like we're headed into a time of easy Christianity. And the truth is. Good. Good. Not because we want hardship or we want things to be more challenging, but our faith grows more deeply in times where we actually have to stand up for it and have to gain strength in order to keep standing. Easy Christianity is just like growing plants. Some of you have planted gardens, right? And you're out, you're out there looking at that stuff and going, is this going to work or not? And you wonder. And uh, I was reading the other day about you know, potted plants versus just, you know, gardens, you know, in the ground like they happen naturally. And it was talking, you know, there are obvious uh, advantages to doing things in raised bed gardens. There are advantages. I, I, Curly and I were talking about the other day that I'm messing around experimenting with potted stuff and hydroponic stuff and things like that. Very simple stuff. Nothing too complicated. Um, but toying around with that, I would not say that I'm gardening. I'm toying around with fiddling. I'm fiddling around with that. Um, but as I do, the reason kind of this year is more research. I want to know which one of those works best where I am. So I'm reading the other day and this guy who ran a, a gardening shop uh, nursery was talking about a customer who had come in and he was trying to figure out, you know, how, which he wanted to do for a particular kind of tree, uh, whether or not he wanted to do it as an ornamental tree in a big, large pot or whether he wanted to do it in the ground. He said, well, let me take you over here. And he showed him the kind of tree he wanted to grow. He had two sets of them. Some were small and some were large. And he said, tell me, how old do you think that this tree is? And the tree was about this tall in a pot. It's a slow-growing tree. 
And he said, well, I, I don't know. Six months? He said, no, that's, that's about three and a half years old, that tree. And he took him over to the other one. And he said, which do you think, or how old do you think this tree over here is? And these trees were, were up here. And he said, well, I would think those would have to be five to ten years old. He's, you know, doing the math on the distance there. And he said, nope, same age. He said, you're kidding me. He said, no, these are in the ground. <laughs> that was what he was saying. This particular tree grows best there. You can grow them over here, but this is what you need to expect. Out here in the wild, this is what you can expect. And there are a lot of things that go into that. Uh, years ago, they did, you remember the, the biodome experiment? They've done biodome one, which was an utter failure, and biodome two, which is a lesser failure, where they tried to create an entire Earth's atmosphere and a way of surviving within just basically a giant greenhouse in a way, but in, in this biodome. And they tried to create all of these little ecosystems within the dome. And so they had things that were a tropical area, and they had a uh, garden for food and all of that kind of stuff, and fish and, you know, the kind of a complete system, they thought. However, everything started out well, and then a lot of the plants just started cratering. They couldn't figure out why. Uh, trees within... Uh, the large open part of the biodome started cratering and they, they couldn't figure it out. And what they found out was that they were missing one very important ingredient, one very important variable inside the biodome. Well, it's inside. And you know what you don't have inside? Somebody from Lubbock answered this question for me. What do you not have inside you have outside? Wind. Wind. Yes, the Lubbock dirt, that does actually make a lot of sense. <laughs> But in Lubbock, you have dirt inside. It comes in under the doors. Uh, but, but yeah, the, it was wind. What they looked at was these trees could not develop healthy root systems without having to withstand the wind. They needed the push of the wind to drive their roots more deeply so that they would be able to hold on. Uh, you can see this even out in nature where there is less wind. You can go places where they get a lot of rain where the soil is very fertile, and where they get little wind. And you know what happens on those few times when they get really strong winds? Yeah, all those trees fall over, and you can see why. Because when they fall over, all the roots are sticking up out of the ground because they're shallow-rooted, because their life is easy. They don't have to go like a mesquite tree. How many, I forget, how, how far down can a mesquite tree go for the roots? It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet down that it, those roots can go. It's ridiculous. I'm from San Angelo. I think they go even deeper there. They have to. And that's one of the reasons you can't get rid of them. Even just go get a good-sized dandelion in your yard and look at the taproot on that sucker. It's incredible. There are trees that don't even have to go that deep where rain is so fertile, snow over the wintertime, things like that. So you go to the northeast, those trees in a strong wind, pop, just fall right over because they've never had the hardship of constant resistance of the wind against them and so they just haven't gotten their roots deep for us as christians sometimes uh, it's not fun to go through what we have to go through i don't think some of the things that are coming are going to be fun and enjoyable at all but i do think that we are living in a time where our roots are going to go more deeply if we trust in the lord if we will double down and get into the Word of God and get into prayer and build our relationship with God, we're living in a time where our roots will end up being stronger. We will be stronger, more faithful, more loving, more kind, more spirit-filled people because of what 
uh, is most likely, just look at the patterns of history, what is most likely ahead of us. And so that's what we ought to be praying for, isn't it? Rather than just praying, well, God, just bring us ease. I mean, I think a lot of us would enjoy that. Why don't we instead just pray, Lord, whatever comes, bring us deep roots, bring us strength, bring us faithfulness, bring us a deeper faith. This is what this reading is really about this morning. So let's let's get into this. I'm going to start in verse six. It's really hard because I just want to go all the way back, but I'm going to go to verse six. Okay, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I want to say before I get too far into this, all of the pictures that are going to be up there behind me this morning, every single one of these photos is from the voice of the martyrs and from things that they put out. Uh, Christians all over the world. Peter just said, you know that your brothers and sisters all over the world are going through the same kinds of things. And as Americans, we know brothers and sisters all over the world are going through even harder things than what we go through. Not to lessen the hardship that you may be dealing with, but just to know there are places where the suffering goes even more deeply than anything we've ever experienced in our life. And so all these pictures are pictures of brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world uh, living their faith, regardless of what comes, regardless of the resistance, uh, firmly and deeply established in the gospel and the hope of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to be, too. So I wanted to, to throw that out there before we get too far. One of our secret weapons is going to be humility. As we look at what's going on in the world, you see that it's not just a matter of uh, drift and social drift and cultural drift and and moral drift toward immorality. You can see that it's actually a, a head on fight. There are people who now are talking about that. Yes, we are going to shout down the Christians. And yes, we are going to shout down things about what is right and what is wrong. And we're going to put this wherever and whenever we can. And they're going to engage in that battle. That's hard for I think for Christians, that's hard for us to understand. I think it's hard for us to understand why anybody would bother to do that. Why target people who aren't even messing with you, right? But it's happening on several different fronts at once. It's happening. And it is not just that people disagree. It is that people disagree and are going to constantly tell you so and are going to simply uh, shout you down. You see it on social media all the time. Somebody will say something that is fairly innocuous. They're talking about their faith and they're saying, this is what I believe and here's what I think is right. And here's what God has said. And they're not trying to pick a fight with anybody. They're not putting anybody down. They're not they're not sitting there saying, I'm better than you because I believe this. There's none of that nonsense. They're just saying, here's what I believe and here's why I believe it. And I believe that God is the one who decides these things. And here it is. Here's what he said. And then you will just see a stream of vitriol 
and hatred and nastiness sometimes. Now, that's not everybody. There are people who disagree with us who disagree respectfully and kindly, and that's the way that it ought to be on both sides of this equation. When we disagree, we should be respectful and kind. That's humility. But you are going to find more and more that you're going to be tempted to not live your faith out loud because you don't want to engage in all of those arguments and the vitriol and the hatred. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Our first step and our greatest weapon, whatever happens, is going to be this, humility. If we try to fight the world's pride, because so much of it is that comes up against us is built on pride, if we fight pride with pride, you end up with nothing but a bunch of fools. Arrogant, ignorant fools. And the worst arrogance and the worst ignorance is when it falls on the heart of somebody who claims to be a representative of Christ. We've got to be a humble people. And that's a hard thing to talk about. It's a hard thing to preach about because, as one guy said, as soon as you start preaching on humility, humility leaves the room, you know, because... The person speaking has a hard time. Well, now, let me tell you how to be humble. Yeah, that doesn't work. You know, it just doesn't work. It's like wearing the little metal there. Uh, and the other thing is, Satan is right there on our shoulder, isn't he? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think being humble is the way to handle that right there. I think you've got to shout. And I think you've got to, if they're getting loud, I think you've got to get louder. And that never works unless you're trying to start a war. That's where it ends up. Anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. That's what Scripture says. Humility does. Look at how Jesus handled the accusations before the cross. Sometimes he was absolutely silent, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So was he. Humility. Refusing sometimes to engage in what was a worthless argument. Refusing to go down every single trail that was offered up to him. So he was humble. He constantly tried with the Pharisees to not to win an argument, but to win their minds and their hearts over. That's why he keeps engaging with them. You would think, well, why didn't he just walk away? Well, the reason he didn't just walk away is he cared about their souls and their hearts, too. Humility helps us to remember no matter how angry the person who's shouting at me is, they are still a person God loves. They are still a person that God has said to us, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies and pray for them. They are still a person that Jesus died for. They are a person his spirit wants to indwell. They are a person he wants to see in eternity. And humility in us keeps all of that in focus. Otherwise, we just start to see them the same way they see us, as enemies. And that's not who they are. That may be who they've declared themselves to be. That's not who they are for us. For us, they are people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what they're saying, doing, shouting, or promoting. That's what they are. No matter who we're talking about, whoever the they is in your mind, Whoever you just went, I've done this little trap for you before, and I'm doing it again. I'm just going to warn you. Whoever you were like, well, yeah, but not them. Exactly, that's the person who. That's the person God is challenging you with right now 
in your heart. That's the one. Pray for them. Love them. And see if you can't reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will be shocked. Absolutely shocked. I was listening to uh, one of the Voice of the Martyrs podcasts the other day. They were talking about this uh, soldier who had, uh, this was during World War II, and it was a soldier who had been captured by the Japanese, and he was being beaten. One of his fellow soldiers sees that he's about to have his life just beaten right out of him, comes up and says, I will take his beating for him. That's humility. That's love in action. He says, I will take his beating for him. The Japanese guards that were beating him took him up on it and were shocked so much that they, the, the beating stopped for both of them. Love can have that impact. And that is love, is it not? I'll take the beating for him. Love comes in a lot of different forms. That's the way it took that day. This is who we are as Christians. This is who we are as, as disciples. And we need to let humility be that secret weapon that God uses to raise up disciples of Jesus Christ who will love greater than anybody else in the world. Don't let the world tell you that you don't know how to love. Don't let the world tell you that you don't know what I hear the song I'm going to say. You don't know what love is. Uh, sorry for the distraction now and the earworm. Uh, but we know what love is. But we are tempted in this time to let the world define it in its own way that is so different from what God has shown us and has defined it. Alistair Begg, some of us listen to Alistair Begg here. He's really good. Find his podcast called Truth for Life. It's excellent. He said the other day, he said, you know, we don't actually have a right. That's hard for Americans to hear. He said, we don't have a right to teach a gospel different than the one Jesus gave us. We don't have a right to teach a truth different than the truth Jesus has brought us. And we don't have a right to change anything that he's given us. And for us, we go, well, yes, I do. Well, you have a legal right. But do you have a spiritual right to do so? Do I? No. can only preach to you what Jesus Christ has revealed by the will of the Father. That's it. And when that falls in a place where people go, yeah, but I don't like that. Well, I haven't liked all of it either. But guess what? God says what he says. He does what he does. He decrees what he decrees. He wills what he wills. And when we went in the water, we said, Lord, I'll do it. I'll teach it, and I'll live by it. And that's who I'll be. What we find is this. If we will humble ourselves in that way, he will show you why it mattered. He will show you. That's part of the exalting, the lifting up. It's not like a necessarily a, a lifting up like he's going to hold you up. It's like, ooh-wee, look how great this one is. It's an exalting, like David talked about in the psalm we read earlier. You take the poor and you lift them up. You get them out of the dirt. You get them out of the pit. You get them out of defeat and bring them into victory and bring them into joy and bring them into happiness. If you trust him, he'll do that in ways you did not foresee. But you got to trust him. Be humble and trust him. 
and don't fight what he says is good, right, and holy. Okay, that's that's the first one. You're like, oh, good night. That was just one slide. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. But don't worry about it. These others go fast. Tim Keller said this. I'm going to quote him one more week. Public faith. I mentioned earlier that I would come back to this. You're going to be tempted as things get harder, as as it gets just more complicated. And how do you negotiate? Sometimes with your job, you have to negotiate some moral things that are difficult to negotiate. Uh, And that can be how you handle money. It can be how you handle social issues, spiritual issues, whatever. There are going to be things that are going to be hard for you to say publicly, I'm a Christian. Here's what I believe. Because sometimes it will cost you. It might cost you a particular job, like just a particular uh, project. It might cost you a job, like your whole job. It may just cost you relationships with various people. What are you going to do? Are you going to just hunker down and go, well, then I guess I'm just never going to talk about my faith again? Let me ask you, who do you think, between God and Satan, who do you think hopes that's the direction you take? It's a simple question. There's really only one right answer. It's Satan, isn't it? Why would God ever say to you, if you will, Jesus said this, if you confess me before men, I will confess your name before the Father. Does that sound like a Messiah who's hoping you'll hide your faith? No, in fact, he then says, but if you deny me before men, if you hide your faith, what will I do? I will deny your name before the Father. Well, then it actually became salvational at that point, didn't it? Like This is who we have to be. It's not even optional. So keep that in mind as we read this. Public faith means going public with what's in your heart. And he's talking here about the gospel and your commitment to Jesus Christ, not just, you know, your your floofy feelings about, you know, whatever. But it means going public about what's in your heart with humility and respect for others. You can't leave that part out. So why Paul says in Ephesians, we speak the truth. How? In love. In love but with humility and respect for others as we speak the truth of the gospel. You go public. We have to. How do you evangelize if you're never willing to tell anybody? It doesn't mean you got to wear, you know, a T-shirt with stuff all over it and have bumper stickers all over your car and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you have to do that. You can very humbly, shrewd as a serpent, gentle as a dove, Jesus said, be public with your faith. But you have to go public with your faith because there's no other way to reach somebody if you won't talk to them. There's no other way to convince someone if you won't tell them the reasons why you believe what you believe and tells us to be ready to do that at any moment. But do it here again, he says, with humility and with respect, because ultimately you care about the person in front of you, even if you don't like them. You should care about them from a holy perspective for their eternity that whoever is in front of you, even if they're yelling, even if they're screaming, even if they've declared you, especially if they've declared you an enemy, humbly, lovingly, kindly, teach them. This next part, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because you're going to have some, aren't you? Might be just that last slide. I got to go public. Some of you that that itself brings you anxiety. Oh, I don't I don't I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to do. You don't know how that's hard that's going to be. You don't know how these people are going to react. Even my own family, some of you might might just blow up at you. They it may be a very difficult holiday. Uh, and you just start going through all of these anxieties that you might have. 
What does he say you do with all those anxieties? What do you do with the anxieties of? But James, if if I have to live and I have to actually have convictions about what God has said is true and live those publicly, then there are people who are going to be angry at me. I will lose business. I will lose this. I will lose that. What am I supposed to do? Cast all your anxiety. Take all those worries. Take all those fears. And what do you do with them? What's the apostle say? Cast them on Jesus. Now, I want us to look carefully at that wording. Cast all your anxiety on him. What do you do when you cast something? What's that word mean? Well, it means that I go talk to the Lord about it. No, it doesn't. What? James doesn't want us to pray? Oh, no, I I really do. But here's the problem with it. We will go talk to the Lord about it. What's the difference between talking to the Lord about it and casting your anxieties on him? Yeah, I got to give it away if I'm going to cast it. I let go of it. I actually, I'm like, God, here it is. It is all yours. If I just talk about it, because you could say, well, James, I've been praying about this forever. Yes, you've been talking to him about it. But have you cast it on him and walked away without a rope around it that you pulled behind you as you left? Have you left it with him? Let him have it. Remember years ago, we were in New York. We were going through a really difficult time, both with the ministry of the work, just hard. It was a very difficult, hard time. And financially, things were really bad. It was back 2007, 8. Most of the country was going through this, right? No matter what your job was. Things were really, really rough at the time. You know, when you're a preacher and you're the biggest contributor to the church, that's usually a problem, okay? Because you're just pulling it out of your pocket and putting it back in, and then the, you're not even able to do that. So that's just, you know, there's nothing. So what do you do? You cast all your anxiety on him. But how are we going to make that payment? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? How are we going to do this? And more importantly was the ministry side of things. How are we going to help these people? How is this person going to stay faithful with what's going on there and with the fears that they won't let go of? Because it's easier to see in the other person, right? Well, they just need to let go of that and give that to God. Yet you're sitting there not doing what? Letting go in that and giving that to God. I remember some sleepless nights, and I remember particularly one night, and it was rough. Natania was sleeping just fine, but I was having a I was having a rough time, and man, wrestled all night long, until finally this sunk in. Now notice I didn't highlight in the big bold letters, cast all your anxiety on. I highlighted that he cares. You'll finally be able to let him have it and let go when you realize what's in bold. He does care. And that care is not just a feeling. He cares and he moves and he works and he helps and he fixes and he has things. He has solutions going on for the things in your life right now that you cannot foresee if you will trust him. Because he does care. He absolutely does. So give it to him. And and w- walk away from it. That was the hardest thing that night. But I did. It was a wrestling night. And I let him have it. And do you know, this is not a boast except in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is nothing to me whatsoever. Because all I did was walk away from it and give it to him. Which we can all do. That was 
Good night. We've been here, here 10 years. That must have been 15 years ago. I've never lost a moment's sleep over those things again. In fact, a few times since then, I thought, should I be losing more sleep? Isn't that weird how the devil works? So it gets you to question the strangest things. Maybe I should be losing more sleep. Maybe I should be more worried about that. Why? You gave it to God. And he still cares. Fifteen years don't change the level of his care. He loves you. And he wants to take care of you. And he will. And he will. Because he loves you. And he cares for you. Verses 8 and 9. Be alert. After Peter tells them this, humble yourself and trust the Lord. Just let him have it. He then says, but don't fall asleep. Maybe that's what every now and then that nudge is. Should I be losing more sleep? I don't think I should be losing more sleep, but should I still be awake? Don't just go on cruise control. Yeah. Be sober. Be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Is that not the truth? Do you not see that right now? This is why I, I, I say what I do about the trending of history. Do you not see Satan very, almost not that hidden? It's like he's crouching out there in the tall grass, but he's lifted his head up just to intimidate you a little so that you know, you know I'm out here, right? He wants you to know. But he's also going to be crafty and sneaky. Resist him. Resist him. Well, how am I supposed to do that? You do that. You just do that. Pray. Trust the Lord. Cast more anxiety. God, take this one too. And trust him, but resist. You just, we overcomplicate this. Okay, people have written whole books. How do I resist the devil? You don't need a whole book. You know how you resist the devil? You say no. When thoughts come into your mind that aren't supposed to be there, you say, uh-uh, I know what you're up to and I'm not going to entertain this. I'm going to walk on. Replace those with the word of God. Replace those with those promises that God has made to you that he'll take care of you. And to do that, you've got to know the word of God. You've got to keep shoring up what you know about Scripture because you need to be well armed when he does make these whispers, don't you? So be ready, but say no. Now, I will say this. Keep your humility. Do not proudly resist. You know why? Because then he's got you. If we start thinking that strength comes from us, if we start saying, I'm a warrior and I can take you on, oh, he has you. You just, as I've said before, jumped over the cow pie and landed all in the horse apples. You're just in trouble now. That's the way that works. Just from one plot to another if you're trying to work that out. Okay? It's a problem. Humbly, in the name of Jesus, resist. Remember the seven sons of Sceva? How they worked that out? They tried to just use Jesus' name like an incantation. What happened? The demons beat them up, stripped them naked, and sent them running into the street. Don't be a son of Sceva, okay? Don't think it's just, I'm just going to say the right scripture. Humbly resist. Let me give you a practical way I mean that. You say to Satan, listen. Because what they said to, to the seven sons of Sceva was, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but we don't know you. That's fine. You just remind them. You may not know me, but you know Jesus. And I belong to him. 
and you can't have me. I am his, and he is securing me, and I am not going there. It works, because God works. God's word works. His promise here is true. Resist the devil, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You can trust this. The devil will flee. Scripture also tells us if we resist him, what happens? He will flee from us. Just remember, it's not really you he's fleeing from, but Christ in you. There's a phrase in Colossians 1 I love, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love that phrase. Remember that. Just resist and then watch how he restores you and watch how he heals you and watch how things start to fall in place. They're not just falling into place. By the providence and the working of God, they are being put into place in your life. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself, look at these words, restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Is that a good promise? It is. That whatever comes, Christ will make you strong, will make you firm, will make you steadfast. He will restore the parts of you that are broken. It's a better promise than just you're going to make it. You're going to survive. He will actually make you stronger, make you more faithful, make you more joyful, make you more holy. He's going to restore you. Knock out all the rust, weld up the parts that need welded, all that good stuff. Yes, he will. It's a promise. If we do what? We just trust him. Love him and stand firm. Just hold on. And he leads us to that kind of glory. I love how he ends it. Peter gets so excited about this. I think this is natural for Peter. I don't think this is eloquent writing. I think this is Peter the fisherman saying, if you will hold on, if you'll cast your anxiety on him, if you will just be faithful, he's going to help you to be faithful and he's going to win those victories in your life and you're going to overcome sin and you're going to be restored and you're going to be stronger and you're going to stand firm. And then he just says, praise the Lord. To him be the glory and the power. Excuse me, I said glory. He said power. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. He just praises God. Why? Well, wouldn't you? Because Peter's not coming at this from theory. This is the same Peter who sank. This is the same Peter who denied. This is the same Peter who blew it at Galatia and had to be rebuked by the Apostle Paul. See, those are all his failures. And we also see in Scripture, after every single one of those, growth, redemption, healing, deliverance, and the ultimate victory. And Peter says, this is so good, I can't even tell you. But to, to God be the power forever and ever because he's going to do this and he will accomplish it. I love how Paul, and I'll close it with this. I love how Paul closes the book of First uh, Thessalonians. In fact, let me, I'm just not even going to just reference it. Let's go over there. First Thessalonians chapter 5. This is one of my favorite endings of any letter in the New Testament. And I think it speaks a promise to the things that we've just seen. Chapter 5, verse 23. It's kind of a a benediction at the end of his letter. Let it be yours. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. That means make you holy, set you apart for a purpose. Sanctify you through and through. 
May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what he says next. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He will. He will make you strong. He will redeem you. He will sanctify you. And he will get you through. He will do it. Let's pray together.